Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and today we're talking about hand injuries, covering types and mechanisms, as well as specific treatment for the different components of the hand. We'll discover the answer to questions like, what's a ring avulsion? And how do you know if an amputated finger can, or even should, be put back on? Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you are needing a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. Yes, many people do not realize that most plastic surgeons have been trained in basic hand surgery during their residency, and a percentage of them go on for additional fellowship training to be even more specialized in their skills. So this episode is the fourth of four special episodes on hand topics. In the previous three episodes, we've gone over nerve compressions like carpal tunnel syndrome, inflammation involved in trigger finger, tendonitis, and ganglion cyst, contractures, like with arthritis and dupatrins, and now we'll talk about injuries of the hand. It's amazing how this essential body part, the hand, can be so valuable and yet also be so vulnerable. Like many things we take for granted, we don't treasure its function very much until we don't have it. There are millions of hand injuries in this country each year, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Today we'll go over some of the types and mechanisms of injury, Then we'll talk about the individual components of the hand and how their injuries would be treated, including what to expect afterwards. So what are the main types of hand injuries? Well, they tend to fall into the following general categories. Lacerations, meaning cuts of varying types and depths. Punctures, crush injuries or compression. Avulsion, meaning pulling or tearing. Amputation and burns or blast injuries. Okay, that's relatively straightforward. But what about the mechanisms of how these injuries can occur, both at home and at work? We'll limit our discussion to nine examples of some notable mechanisms here, but my goodness, there are so many more. First up is kitchen accidents. And going back to those types of injury, primarily we see laceration and puncture. These can include injuries created with knife slips when doing things like chopping or trying to separate frozen foods, or digging hard wax out of a candle holder. Of course, burns are also a risk in the kitchen, and there are so many other opportunities to get hurt or cut in the kitchen. The second mechanism is broken glass, again resulting in laceration. Now, what you should realize is that cuts with glass can be deceptively deep. In fact, despite maybe not looking too bad at the surface level, they are notorious for having damaged quite a few important structures like tendons and nerves underneath the skin. It's because the glass is both hard and very sharp. As a result of this knowledge that glass injuries run deep, there is a low threshold to bring someone to the operating room to enlarge the opening and explore the wound, particularly if that patient is experiencing some numbness or difficulty in moving the fingers. The third mechanism of injury is a bite, resulting primarily in laceration and puncture. A bite could be from an animal or even from a human. Both have bad bacteria in their saliva, 
So there is definitely an increased infection risk, which can cause some real harm, especially if the injury is all the way down to a joint. That higher infection risk sometimes means the best course of action with these is to just wash out the wound and then delay the suturing or stitching of the wound until we are sure the wound is clean enough and has been given the chance to drain as needed. If a bite wound is stitched up prematurely, any infection that develops can start to spread up the arm and then progress to involve the whole body. Next are falls from a height, commonly resulting in fracture or dislocation, and these can include accidents such as falling off a ladder or even from a roof. Falls can result in some major damage, particularly to bones and joints and supporting ligaments. The fifth mechanism example is a gunshot wound. This can be a serious injury to the hand and may result in both soft tissue, meaning flesh, and bone injury, with a combination of laceration or puncture and blast effect. Next, motor vehicle accidents can produce different mechanical forces, such that many of the injury types we listed can be produced all at once within the same hand, involving both soft tissues, meaning flesh, and bones, potentially. So all of those injury types we talked about could occur here. Lacerations, punctures, crush injuries, avulsion, amputation, and burns. It's not too hard to imagine that an arm that was, say, hanging out of a window during the crash would have a pretty high chance of severe soft tissue and bone injuries and maybe some degree of amputation. I have to say personally, that's why I never let my arm hang over the edge of the car door while in a car. But even when hands are kept safely inside the car, there is a world of possibility for injury, large or small, unfortunately. I mean primarily during a car accident, but even a fingertip caught in a door can create a small fracture and a nail bed injury. The seventh mechanism is machinery. Industrial machinery, such as a press for farm machinery, like a grain auger or a tractor, can also create a wide variety of injuries to the hand. Machinery injuries could involve laceration, crush, avulsion, or amputation, as well as burns or blast. Most of these machines are pretty strong and heavy duty and designed to create a significant force. If your hand is a recipient of that force, I think you can imagine how bad that could be. In my career, I've seen some unbelievably devastating injuries that our team did our best to put back together. Many times we were successful, but sometimes not as much as we would have hoped. Also under the category of machinery, there can be puncture injuries from a mechanized nail gun or paint gun. The nail could get lodged in a bone and be difficult to remove. It may cause some damage along the way, too. And the paint gun injection injury is typically under high pressure, so the paint will follow the easiest path inside the finger, which is to travel inside or along the tendon sheath. That creates a significant infection risk, and it is almost always a surgical urgency to open up the finger very widely and clean it out. It may require more than one operation as well. Next is ring avulsion. Now what is that, you might ask? Well, if a person is wearing a ring at the time of an injury, it may get caught up on a piece of machinery that pulls with force or caught on an object, say, as a person was falling from a ladder. The ring gets caught typically at an angle, and so it is not able to just slip off the finger. Instead, unfortunately, it digs into the soft tissue as the ring is being pulled or as the person is falling, and that results in avulsing, tearing, or sloughing off of much of the soft tissue of the finger. It's been known to produce a complete amputation as well. Unfortunately, we know that while tissues that have been torn or ripped can be stitched back in place and important structures reconnected, they definitely do not heal as well. They may not even survive due to the severe tissue damage as the process of the injury occurs. 
And the last group I'll mention here are the seasonal injury mechanisms. Summer is lawnmower and fireworks season. Now, lawnmower injuries can result in laceration or amputation. Be careful what you use to unclog that thing, hopefully not your fingers. And fireworks can result in anything from burns to blast injury to even amputation. Unfortunately, there often seems to be alcohol involved in fireworks injuries, so judgment is frequently impaired. This can lead to improper risks being taken and more severe injury as a result. No one ever thinks it will happen to them. We've seen some pretty bad injuries each 4th of July. And then winter is snowblower season. Snowblower injuries can result in laceration as well as amputation in more severe cases. This typically happens when wet snow gets densely packed into the snowblower, clogging it. The user may think they're smart by, of course, turning off the snowblower before clearing out the snow by hand. But what they're forgetting is that at the time the machine got stopped up, there was some built-up torque on the motor. So as the machine becomes manually unclogged, even though it is off, there is a release of that torque which can unfortunately take off a fingertip. The key is never ever put your hand inside the snowblower to unclog it, no matter what. Use an instrument or something else, and always follow the manufacturer's instructions. Okay, we've gone over types of injury to the hand and some mechanisms or how they occur. Now let's break it down into specific anatomic hand components because each one requires unique and specialized treatment. And each one has different expectations for recovery as well. We'll start with the most straightforward, skin and soft tissue. Lacerations are evaluated to see if important deeper structures are involved and need special repair. If the laceration is not too big and it's just limited to the skin level, the ER doctor can usually take care of repairing it. Otherwise, the hand surgeon, often a plastic surgeon, would be called. Again, not for cosmetic or aesthetic reasons, but for reconstructive reasons. If there are deeper important structures like tendons, nerves, etc. involved, we'll talk about what needs to be done for those in just a little bit. Burns of the skin can occasionally be chemical, but mostly are thermal in nature. Burns may produce blisters, which when located on the hand, we try not to pop unless they are problematic. Since doing so may make them more painful, it may introduce infection. Burns could also be deep or large enough that they may need special coverage, such as with a skin graft. And that will take a little longer to heal, but it's a worthwhile procedure. Now you could actually just let a large burn heal in on its own, but healing such a sizable area can take a long, long time and puts the hand at risk for infection and scar contractors as well. Crush and blast injuries of the soft tissues in the hand can be frustrating because even if there's not much to surgically repair, they frequently result in long-standing swelling and stiffness. It can be months before a person feels they're at their new baseline. And we'll include nail bed injuries with the skin and soft tissue category as well. The nail bed is kind of a delicate structure that sits underneath the nail plate and supports it. The growth of the nail plate actually originates from underneath the skin located near the last knuckle or joint on the finger. Did you know that you can stitch a nail bed, the part underneath the nail plate, with sutures? If it's a significant cut or tear, then there is a lesser chance of irregular future nail growth if the nail bed can be realigned properly. Though keep in mind that the first new nail that grows out will be very funny shaped anyway but that usually resolves by the time the full nail grows back in about four months on average. Next, after skin and soft tissue, let's talk about injury to tendons. 
You may recall our discussion of tendon function and anatomy from episode number 27, but basically tendons are like strong fibrous cords that are most often attaching a muscle to a bone and help create movement, such as of the fingers. For our purposes in the hand today, we're going to talk about flexor tendons and extensor tendons. The flexor tendons help bend the fingers and wrist. You need them to grasp an object or to make a fist. And extensor tendons do the opposite. They straighten or extend the fingers and wrist so you can let go of an object or lift the hand away. So if a tendon is cut or damaged, its important function is lost and it should be repaired. Yet it's not crucial that it be repaired immediately. Let's say a patient goes to the emergency room in the late evening after accidentally cutting a finger with a knife and the ER doctor notices that the patient can no longer bend that finger. The ER doctor can wash out and suture the skin closed, then refer the patient to see a hand surgeon within a few days so a formal repair in the operating room can be planned. This allows the regular daytime operating room crew who are most familiar with the surgeon's technique to assist with the procedure. Things may go a bit more smoothly that way though the exception would be if there was a more urgent problem as well, such as extensive bleeding or not enough blood supply getting to a finger due to a blood vessel injury. These need emergent surgery. Once a tendon is repaired, a lot of people don't realize the healing and recovery can be quite lengthy. Rehab for a flexor tendon in particular can take a couple of months, including all the special splinting and hand therapy that would be needed. And unfortunately, Sometimes a tendon injury is not recognized right away. If it's been more than a couple of weeks, the muscle in the forearm that the tendon was attached to may be irreversibly contracted and shortened, so the tendon can no longer be pulled out to length for suturing to the other cut end. Then a tendon graft may be needed to make up the difference, meaning a less crucial piece of tendon can be harvested from the body and spliced in to allow completion of the repair. Believe it or not, our bodies do come with what you might consider some spare parts. In particular, there is a tendon in the wrist, as well as one in the lower leg, which both serve little function on their own, but are ideal for such a harvest. If too much time has passed before repair, the nice tendon sheath that the tendon would normally glide in may have collapsed and scarred down so that the tendon graft cannot be positioned within it. In that situation, what's called late reconstruction will have to be performed, which is a two-stage procedure involving a silastic tendon spacer first being put in to help establish a new tunnel for the tendon. It's slippery, so the surrounding tissues will not scar down to it. After a couple of months or so, the spacer is then replaced with the actual tendon graft. In some situations, the two-stage tendon reconstruction may not be ideal, so there are two additional options which could be considered either a tenodesis or else a tendon transfer. For a tenodesis, the cut tendon is stitched to another functioning tendon, like a piggyback, so that, for example, one tendon might now move two fingers. For a tendon transfer, a less important muscle tendon unit is completely sacrificed and rerouted to connect to the cut tendon, thus restoring a more important function for the hand. All of these late reconstructive options require extensive recovery and rehab therapy, as you might imagine. Moving on now to injured nerves, the loss of function is typically manifested in the hand by loss of sensation in the specific area that was served by that particular nerve, if it was a sensory nerve. For example, each digital nerve supplies the feeling in one half of one finger lengthwise, 
so a cut digital nerve will produce numbness in that specific distribution of the finger. Now, a nerve could lose its function from being cut or just from being badly crushed or stretched. If it's cut and the two ends are apart from each other, they need to be repositioned and stitched back together. That does not mean you would get your sensation back right away. No, in fact, once reattached, the nerve heals itself by growing through the old nerve, using it as a scaffold. And this recovery progresses towards the tip of the finger at a rate of about a half inch per month, at the fastest. So if a nerve was cut way back in the palm, then after repair, it could still take a year or more to recover, as well as it's going to. Sometimes scar tissue forms right where the two nerve ends were stitched back together, and in that case, the regrowth will unfortunately be blocked, which usually means another surgery is required to splice out that scarred area and replace it with a piece of nerve grafted from someplace else where its function is less important. A common area to harvest such a nerve graft would be from the outside of the ankle, where the sensation is considered less crucial than in a fingertip. Now, if the injured nerve had been a motor nerve, or one that normally supplies a muscle and stimulates it to contract or move, then that muscle function can be lost. Repair of the nerve will still take a while to restore function, again depending upon the distance from the cut to the muscle itself. Alas, if nerve injury is not recognized in a timely fashion, such that too much time has passed before the nerve is sutured, and especially if this is a large, important nerve, then repair may not be successful. If that's the case, the tendon transfer technique I just mentioned may have to be employed to restore muscle function and just bypass the repaired nerve altogether. Next, let's talk about blood vessel injury. We sure have a lot of them in the hand region, so some overlap is built in a bit, so to speak, thankfully. But there can be a substantial enough blood vessel injury, or what we call a vascular injury, that either too much bleeding is occurring or not enough blood supply is getting to the needed parts, like fingers. Those situations are emergent indeed and usually result in a trip to the operating room right away. For the smaller blood vessels to be repaired, a microscope is commonly used, just like it might be with a smaller nerve repair, in order to see great detail and get the sutures placed just right. The sutures are as thin as a hair and keep the ends of the blood vessels together, but under the microscope they're placed in such a way that they will hopefully not create an obstruction or start a clot. I can tell you from experience that it's a pretty great feeling to repair a digital artery and see the finger pink back up again after the blood supply has been restored. The last component in the hand is bone. Typically the injuries we might see are fractures, meaning breaks in the bone, or sometimes we see dislocations of a joint, which is a connection point of two bones. These bone injuries can be categorized as either open or closed. Open means there is a laceration or cut in the skin overlying the area, so bacteria on the skin could eventually contaminate the bone or joint and cause infection. And you don't have to actually see the bone in the wound for it to be considered an open fracture. Open fractures generally need to be washed out at the time of presentation of injury. The longer the delay, the higher the risk of infection. A closed fracture, on the other hand, has intact skin over it, so the timing of treatment has some flexibility. It can be referred to a hand specialist during regular hours after stabilizing it with a splint. A fracture or broken bone can sometimes be healed just with splinting or casting, but not uncommonly, it may need to be taken to the operating room for repositioning of the bone fragments under anesthesia or for formal surgery to fixate the fracture with pins or plates and screws. Now for a dislocated joint, meaning the bones are out of proper positioning with each other, 
Repositioning is ideally done as soon as it is reasonably possible after injury presentation. Sometimes the dislocation is a bit resistant and stuck in the wrong position, however, so it may also require a trip to the operating room. Fractures can take weeks or months to heal depending upon the type and the location. On occasion, they don't heal at all, which is called a non-union, and then further surgery may be warranted. Sometimes a bit of bone graft is used and, you guessed it, harvested from an area that is considered less important. Though there are some bone substitutes that are manufactured these days and may be used in this situation. As we begin to finish up today, I want to tell you more about a special category of injury, and that is amputation. It's special because it involves all of the structures and components of the hand we've just talked about. Usually the biggest question is whether or not an amputated part can be put back on, or as we say in the medical field, replanted. Replantation is a very specialized procedure that not every medical facility can offer. Many times the patient would be transferred to another hospital where this surgery can be performed by a trained surgeon. It's a lengthy procedure that requires putting back together bone, tendon, nerves, artery, veins, soft tissues, and skin, and it requires a microscope. There is usually an overnight stay for observation, and it may require returns back to the operating room if a blood vessel clots or the replanted part starts to fail to survive. In addition to that, there is quite extensive downtime and hand therapy required, typically for at least a couple of months. If replantation is even going to be considered, the patient has to be agreeable to all of this and feel like it's going to be feasible for them to follow through. So the answer to whether or not an amputated part is replantable depends on some important criteria. Let's discuss. First up is the size of the amputated part. In other words, does it have big enough blood vessels, etc., to be able to be put back together and hope to survive? For example, amputation of a fingertip is not typically considered replantable. Instead, the injury would either have what's called a revision amputation, meaning that any exposed bone would be trimmed back a little bit and the wound would be closed up so the patient can get back to regular activities sooner. Or the fingertip would be reconstructed with some type of local or flap tissues. By the way, you can learn more about the interesting topic of flaps by listening to episode number 24. Next, was it a clean cut, in which case the amount of damage to the blood vessels, tendons, bones, etc. is limited? Or was it a crush or avulsion injury, in which case the tissues are badly injured from traction and bruising? In the latter case, the structures have a very poor track record of survival and healing well, so replantation may not be attempted. Also, it's important to consider the length of time that has passed between the injury and the possible surgical treatment. While we generally want to have the procedure take place as soon as feasible, some finger replantations have been successful up to 24 hours later if the amputated fingers are in good condition and prepared properly, meaning gently wrapped in clean gauze and put in a clean plastic bag that is placed on ice. By the way, the amputated part should never be placed directly into water or saline or ice. If the amputated part is a hand or forearm, however, there is more muscle tissue present, which is subject to decay much faster. That replantation attempt really needs to be within a few hours. Another factor to consider is which fingers are amputated and how many. After years of study and realizing how difficult the rehabilitation following replantation can be, the general recommendation now is that a single finger amputation is not necessarily considered a true indication for replantation. 
However, amputation of multiple fingers or amputation of a thumb are indeed acceptable criteria for attempted replantation. What if a replanted digit starts to fail? Well, the patient may be brought back to the operating room emergently, such as to try to revise the repair of the artery, bringing blood supply to the finger. But again, the longer the time out from the original injury, the less likely the amputated part is going to be salvageable. Now, getting good blood supply to the digit by reconnecting the artery is one thing, but the blood also has to be able to get back out. That's what veins are for. But typically, veins are the hardest things to repair in a replanted finger. They are flimsier than arteries, and it's also hard to get them to remain open. If they don't remain open, then the blood can't get back out of the finger. The finger becomes engorged, and then pretty soon all the blood vessels get backed up and can clot off. That's where some other remedies you may have heard about, including the use of medicinal leeches, come into play. A leech can help with venous drainage, relieving some of the backed up blood until the body has time to form some new small veins to do this job. There has been a fair amount of success with this in the past, but it is not consistent, and there are other options too. But let's say that despite best attempts, an important digit like the thumb does not survive and we need to do something further. Late reconstruction of the thumb may be considered, such as a toe-to-thumb transfer, which makes a thumb out of the big toe, or a polycization, which is moving the next digit over, commonly the index finger, to now become a thumb. Yes, in plastic surgery, there are lots of fascinating reconstructive options that can be considered in hopes of restoring finger and hand function. And finally, before we go, a word on hand therapy. Many injuries today, beyond just a small laceration, will not only benefit from some hand therapy after repair, but may even require it to get back to a functional state and to minimize stiffness and scarring. Formal hand therapy is typically done by a specialized occupational therapist, but you can kind of think of it as physical therapy for the hand. When therapy is indicated as necessary by the hand surgeon, this is not to be skimped on. In fact, the whole repair can become a failure without the prescribed therapy. In those cases, surgery is only half of the equation. Putting parts back together is one thing, as challenging as it is sometimes, but helping those parts actually work properly and facilitating this without damaging the delicate repair that was done fall under the realm of the hand therapist. All right, we've packed a lot of good information into this discussion about hand injuries, and I think you can now appreciate the wide range of harm this essential workhorse of a body part can experience. Many components can even be injured at once, but each type of structure requires a little something different in terms of technique and timing of repair, as well as recovery. It's no wonder that surgeons have to spend years training and learning how to provide the best care. Bottom line, Your hands are so intricate and so important. Be good to them and be careful. But if you do get into trouble, your plastic surgeon has you covered. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.